If you're able to kneel with me for prayer, will you do so? Oh, actually, little baby Lena is here. Um, Lena Strasbaugh. Oh. Okay, now if you're able to kneel with me for prayer, will you do so? Dear Heavenly Father, we are bowed before you. We, we say we surrender all to you, Lord. And we know, Lord, that you are our righteousness, that you are our help, that you are an ever-present help in a time of need. In every situation that we experience, Lord, you are completely trustworthy and true. You are faithful and true. And we invite your Holy Spirit to teach us Lord, teach us your ways. Teach us what you desire for us to know from you this morning. May our hearts be open and surrendered before you. May we anticipate and, um, and may our desire be for you and be for your word and for your teaching. And I pray for Conrad, Lord, as he, um, as he delivers this word that you have for us. Lord, I pray for a hedge of protection around him. Lord, I pray that, um, I pray for your peace and for, for your calm to be upon Conrad. I pray, Lord, for um, an ability to deliver the word, Lord, with your clarity and with your boldness. I pray for his protection, Lord, both now and in the week to come. Thank you for this word, Lord. Thank you for um, Conrad's willingness and obedience in delivering it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Good morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name. It's great to see all of you here. Last week, we commissioned the sailboat, the Apostle, which is still in the multipurpose space until uh, we take it out very soon. So if you want to see the Apostle in heaven, stop by and see it. The Apostle, of course, is the name of a ship, as I've been saying, and the name of the captain of the ship that during Roman times sailed into places in the world where there were no Roman colonies and established Roman culture, and Roman society. And so the church adapted the idea of the apostle and the apostleship as well. So that apostles and apostolic churches like ours are those who set their sail in the winds of the Spirit and move to establish messianic, messiah communities where there are none. Commissioning our little boat last week was a prophetic act of sending this congregation into a journey to multiply what God is doing among us. On Wednesday evening, several of us had the opportunity to give a visible expression to that apostolic journey, uh, when about 10 of us from the congregation shared with eight other congregations from Lancaster Conference who came to, this, came to the church, about 50 people, of it, including us total, um, and shared what God is doing. And I just really appreciate all who participated in that and were part of that evening. Joseph Berthold, who is a bishop from Lancaster Conference and clearly an apostolic bishop, he's a church planter, shared this with me later. 
Thanks for your commitment to share what you have learned personally and as a congregation with other churches in our conference. Your church has experienced a kind of renewal internally, which we are hoping for many other LMC churches. It demonstrates the changes of church culture that are possible. It is evident that the leaders in your congregation are on board and excited. They themselves are good communicators of that vision. Now that your congregation is healthy and has developed an apostolic vision, I am wondering what your next step is as you envision the future. And that's on the front burner of the board and the ministry team as we ask God, what are you calling us to now? What does multiplication look like? What does it mean to be apostolic as a congregation uh, in the next months and years? So keep, keep that in prayer. Keep that in prayer for the teams. And if you have questions about that, feel free to uh, ask or make suggestions as well. While these are encouraging words from an apostolic bishop, they are also words that ring with a sense of responsibility that we have to fulfill the mission that God has sent us into and that we have begun. As Paul and Barnabas marched through Europe and Asia, they must have had moments like we have had, celebrating with joy the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in the pagan and Jewish communities where news of the Messiah was being shared. In fact, as we ended last week, we found them leaving Pisidian Antioch Filled with joy, it says, the scripture says, and the Holy Spirit. The proconsul had become a believer, others had been saved, and Elimus, the Jewish sorcerer, had been confronted by Paul, who called him a child of the devil, and Elimus was made blind on the spot. Things seemed to be going just the way they should be for those who carried the good news of the Messiah, who was the victor over sin and darkness and death and hell and the devil. Clearly, the Messiah team was defeating the forces of darkness. But over the next several chapters, the realities of proclaiming the Messiah as victor over the dark powers of Satan will become true and more clearly into view for Paul and Barnabas. Imprisonment, multiple imprisonments, stonings, being chased out of the city. The Messiah message had begun to stir up the Jews as well as the Gentile pagans. In Thessalonica, they are accused of turning the world upside down, which is what our series is entitled turning the world upside down. Because everywhere Paul went, he seems to be part of a riot. Everywhere Paul goes, a riot breaks out. The Messiah message is so upsetting to the status quo of the places where Paul went that a riot almost always broke out, both among Jews and Gentiles. It's not like Paul entered a community and started stirring up a riot. Paul wasn't part of that. He's not trying to create chaos and confusion. No, he enters the community, he tells the story of the Messiah, of of the Messiah's plans of Yahweh to, to save the world and defeat forever the devil and darkness. That's the story. Remember, it's the eschatological story. Abraham, Exodus, David, the exile, deliverance, and then the Messiah. It's the radical nature of this message that is heretical. It's heresy for the Jewish listener who could not believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus could be part of this eschatological story that God had written. Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter. Jesus of Nazareth. And for the Gentiles, we see that it's also hard for them, for many of them to accept this story. Because too often, the message of victory over darkness and freedom from Satan challenged their own social and economic status, as we're going to see in today's story. And it triggered resentment and unleashed assaults upon Paul. As I noted last week, N.T. Wright, who um, I'm drawing from for parts of the series, 
wonders a bit, where are the riots that are happening when you and I show up? Where are the riots taking place that uh, were so much a part of Paul's teaching and his story? And N.T. Wright says, asks, have we trimmed our apostolic sails? Have we trimmed our apostolic sails too much by compromising the culture around us that we're pretty passive now? And that there's nothing, that, there's nothing about our messianic story that stirs people up or that stirs resentment. Several weeks ago, I read a book that I've been wanting to read for a long time by Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel was a Jewish Holocaust survivor who, at the age of 15, watched his father die in the camps and all of his family die. He was the only survivor of his family. Elie was 13 years old in a village in Hungary when he became interested in Kabbalah, which is the mystical Jewish theology uh, that's part of Judaism. Um, But he couldn't find anyone to teach him, except a very poor man on the margins of his community named Moisha the Beetle. Moisha the Beetle. He became Eli's teacher of the mysteries of God. One day, Moisha the Beetle was hauled away by the Nazis because he was a foreign Jew, and he uh, was put on a train But he escaped the train, and he returned to Ellie's village to tell them that the Nazis were performing atrocities on the Jews. They were killing babies, they were killing men and women. He described everything he had seen to this Jewish community in Hungary, but nobody believed him. Nobody believed his story. Even Ellie, who trusted Moshe, did not believe his story. They just assumed that, again, he was the strange old man who was on the margins of their community telling more tall stories about what was really happening because it didn't look like anything was changing in their community. Things were the same every day, from day to day. The Germans can't be that bad. The Germans will never come. And the old man grew exasperated because no one listened to him. But his stories were true, and eventually the Germans would come, and they would take Eli and his family and kill all of them except Eli. I suspect that at times for the Apostle Paul... Uh, he must have felt a little bit like Moisha, the beetle. Here he was, one whose life had been completely turned around by the Messiah in the most unlikely of ways. It was most unlikely that Paul himself would ever become a convert of the Messiah. But he was confronted by the Messiah's power on the way to Damascus, and then after that, spent his life trying desperately, like Moisha, to convince the people that they should leave their community, that there would be salvation only if they left town to escape the Jews. In the same way, Paul knew that he now had a message of freedom and deliverance and salvation for his people if they would only pay attention to it, if they would only flee the darkness. And how exasperating it must have been for Paul that, that city after city after city, synagogue after synagogue after synagogue, people turned their back on the story that he knew was true. And so way too often, Paul found himself on the receiving end of a riot that was less about him than it was about the radical message of the Messiah that he was so convinced about and trying so hard to convince others to accept. Paul says in Colossians of Jesus, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has disarmed the powers and principalities. He has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the message that Paul kept preaching from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has disarmed the powers and principalities of Satan. 
He has made a public spectacle of them. He has made fools of them, says Paul. He has triumphed over them by the cross. Paul knew that the resurrection of Jesus Christ over death and sin and hell and destruction and the devil had made the difference for the entire rest of eternity. In that moment, Christ had overcome Satan. But as we are going to see in today's lesson, the riots that occurred time and again are simply an earthly expression of the confusion and chaos and intimidation and threats and deceit of the satanic, and I did say satanic, principalities and powers that respond to the Messiah's message that Jesus is the victor over them. From the road to Damascus and for the rest of his life, Paul proclaims Jesus as victor over Satan. And that message always stirs up turmoil from the pit of hell. If we honestly proclaim Jesus as victor, there will be people who find that salvation and embrace it as there were on Paul's journeys. But there will also be people who are offended by that message. Read with me, if you would, from Acts 19, 8 to 22. Gang in the front, Acts 19, 8 to 22. Feels like a long time since I've asked you for a scripture. Acts 19. Colin? What's that? 901, if you need a Bible, there should be one in front of you. 901 in that Bible, under the chairs. Um, I'm going to begin with verse 8 of chapter 19. Paul is now in Ephesus. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate, they refused to believe, and publicly maligned the way, the way of Christ. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for almost two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this also. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. What do we see happening in this passage? God is doing in Ephesus. And Ephesus was known as the place that was one of the most well-known places in Asia for idol worship. We're going to get into this a little bit later this morning. But Artemis, the goddess Artemis, a goddess of fertility, had her temple there. Periodically, Jew, uh, Gentiles, um, pagans from around the Roman Empire, would build a temple and then send the diagram or send paintings of uh, uh, illustrations of the temple to Rome. And then Rome would award the greatest temple throughout the Roman Empire. 
the greatest pagan temple. This, this temple had won, and Ephesus had won one or two awards over the centuries. They took their idol worship seriously. They were known for their worship of Artemis, this pagan goddess. So what's interesting is that in this place where you have satanic and demonic power so present, God does these miraculous works through Paul that do not happen, as we see in some of the other places he visits that we're aware of. And so people are healed simply by bringing a handkerchief or apron that has touched Paul and brought back to them. They're healed. Local Jews begin to try to cast out demons in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, only to find that one of the spirits answered, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but I have no clue who you are, and then beats up the person who was trying to cast him out. Those who believed, confessed their sins, brought sorcery materials and burned them publicly, and those materials are worth approximately four, were worth approximately $4 million dollars. God's message of salvation was digging deep into Ephesus, was going deep into the foundations of the darkness of Ephesus. The powers and principalities of Satan were facing a power they had not faced before, and they are finding themselves defeated, even as the word of the Lord, says Luke, grows and continues to spread in power. So do you see what's happening? There is a big spiritual battle taking place in Ephesus, and the messianic message is winning. The Messiah and the Messiah's power is winning. I want to stop here and make a point. When Satan's power was confronted by Paul, people came to believe in the Messiah. And the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Paul recognized that being, a, being an apostle meant telling the good news of the Messiah, but also confronting the powers of Satan. He told the good news of redemption, but that would always trigger the powers of Satan in response. Because as I said last week, when we are freeing people and being freed, Satan will respond. Too often in our Western church, particularly since the Enlightenment of the 18th century, we have denied or ignored the powers of Satan that are just as alive and active as they were in the first century. Satan has not gone to sleep. We may have gone to sleep, but he and his demonic powers have not. C.S. Lewis says this, the devil loves two things. He loves when we deny his reality, and he loves when we become obsessed with his reality. He loves when we deny his reality because then we are naive to what he's doing. And he loves when we become obsessed with his reality and look for him around every corner. Paul was neither. He was neither naive about Satan's power, he says, be alert, but he also was not intimidated by nor obsessed with Satan's power, because he knew the one who had the victory over Satan ultimately. The truth that Paul preached about Jesus the Messiah as God's answer for the world, that truth revealed the principalities and powers of Satan. So when the truth of the Messiah is spoken, it reveals the principalities and powers because they will respond. They can't help but respond. They will respond in the face of Jesus and the truth of Jesus. Paul did not deny those powers, but he also did not live in fear of them. Or he also did not design a theology around them. His theology was always around Jesus the Messiah. Because he knew that was the truth, that was the victory, that was the redemption. Paul was convinced that the Messiah had defeated the powers of darkness, but that they would continue to be revealed as the truth of the cross and the resurrection was preached. I'm pretty convinced after this study of Paul that there is a correlation between our faithfulness in sharing the news that Jesus has overcome the darkness and brought life 
and the extent to which Satan fights back. I'm pretty convinced that there is a correlation between, that is, as we tell the story of Jesus' redemption and deliverance, we can expect the enemy to respond in kind. Sometimes it's in people around us. Sometimes it's in the principalities and powers of of the heavenlies that are harder to identify. But there will be a response. And that's why Paul says, be alert. And Peter says, be alert. You see, up to this point in the story of Paul, his confrontations with Satan were mostly at an interpersonal level. They were mostly with people who, were, who had demonic powers within them. They were individuals who had possessed or were dominated by a demonic spirit. And when they were confronted by the name of Jesus, the victorious Messiah, they responded and fled like demons do when they're confronted with Jesus' name. Up to this point, for Paul, that had been a successful approach. Rebuke the demons in individuals and the demons flee. The demons caved in to the name of Jesus. And so at the end of his stay in Ephesus, it is possible that Paul felt pretty good about his win-loss record against Satan. And we see that he leaves Ephesus then. Um, I didn't read 21 to 22, but he leaves Ephesus for a time. It's a little hard to figure out there, but commentators are pretty convinced he actually left Ephesus and goes to Corinth. Um, He leaves Ephesus and goes to Corinth, but he will come back again as we're going to read in verses 23 to 41. Um, He comes back to Ephesus, though, after a very painful time in Corinth because he had planted the church in Corinth before he plants the church in Ephesus. And he went back to visit the people who who had come to Jesus under his preaching, and they really rejected him. They really chastised him. They didn't want much to do with him. And so he leaves after a very painful journey with the Corinthian church. And he comes back to Ephesus, perhaps because that's where he'd had so much success against Satan. But such is not going to be the case so easily this time back in Ephesus. The greatest darkness for Paul still lies ahead in these verses. And I'm going to read 23 now to 41. 23 to 41 of chapter 19. About that time there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines or silver images of Artemis, the goddess, brought in no little business for the craftsmen. He called them all together along with the workmen in related trades and said, men, you know that we receive a good income from this business. And you see in here how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that man-made gods are no gods at all. There is a danger, men, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the very temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and rushed as one man into the theater. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. 
The Jews pushed Alexander to the front, and some of the crowd shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? They believed this image of Artemis actually fell from, from Zeus, that Zeus had sent it down. Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to be quiet and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither, neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and they, can, they, have, protoco, they have proconsuls there. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in the legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of today's events. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. Up to this point, as I just said, the confrontations of Paul with the satanic powers were often in the context of individuals who had demonic spirits within them. And a confrontation with those powers in Jesus' name was enough to deliver the people carrying those spirits. In other words, the demonic in these cases was at the level of the individual and could be addressed by proclaiming the name of Jesus. But in this last story from Ephesus, we see something else happening. What we see is that the powers of sin and darkness and the demonic are integrated into the social structures of Ephesus. They're not just embedded in people. They're actually embedded in the social institutions, the social structures of Ephesus. Social institutions are things like the economy, things like family, things like marriage, things like religion and government. Social institutions have a certain level of control over our lives. We often don't recognize how they control our lives, but they do. They have control over the individual in ways that we don't think about. <clears throat> in fact, as human beings, we tend to live at and think about our lives as a series of interpersonal events on an everyday basis. I, I'm at home with Heidi. I'm, I'm with my students. I'm with you. We think about life at kind of an interpersonal, relational level. When we run into a conflict with another person, we tend to assume that we can just talk it out. And if we can just talk it out, then everything will be okay. But that assumption often fails to take into account that there are larger forces and factors at play in those relationships, including spiritual forces, and including things like how we were raised in our families, the amount of money we have, how our political allegiances affect our views of the world, how we are influenced by social media, talk radio, the internet, and on and on and on. That is, when you and I come together to talk, we often are coming from two very different worlds. And we try to have a conversation, but often how we have been socialized and the social institutions that we are part of influence the way we see the world and how we understand the world. Again, most of the time our lives are lived at this everyday level and we don't pay much attention to the social institutions. I want to give you an example that I've been teaching about for the last 25 years. I teach a course on race and ethnic relations in this country. And racism is a good example of how this works spiritually. And in fact, racism is itself an example of the demonic powers that were unleashed in this country 300 years ago. Most people see racism as an interpersonal problem. He doesn't like his black coworker. If the two of them would just talk it out, they could be friends and bingo, racism is gone. 
Or we often hear people say something like this, I can't be racist because I have friends who are, friends who are black or Hispanic or friends of color. These kinds of responses assume that racism and the evils of racism are always at the level of individuals and at the level of individual relationships. And that they take the, they, they take the form of simply individual behaviors like prejudice or actions that I have towards a person. The problem is, though, that racism, like all dark and evil forces, finds expression in individuals, is carried by individuals, including Christians, but it is ultimately embedded in the social fabric of our institutions in this country. And just dealing with racism at an interpersonal level doesn't take care of racism at an institutional level, at a broader level, which is actually more powerful than at the interpersonal level often. The fact that the wealth of blacks in America is 7% that of whites, that in some communities, one out of three black men are in prison, that in York County recently, a judge gave a first-time black offender, a young man, a bail of $200,000 for a first offense, a minor offense, but the three other white youth with equal charges or greater charges, bail of ten dollars to $15,000. The fact that whites live 3.5 years longer than blacks, the fact that 89% of whites finish high school compared to 78% of blacks, the fact that in the increase of inmates in this country in prison from 700,000 to 2.3 million today over the last 40 years, that it is disproportionately black, all of that has nothing to do with interpersonal relationships. That has nothing to do with relationships between the races or something that I'm personally racist about. No, it has to do with racism that is embedded in this country and in the history of this country. And I spend an entire semester with my students walking through that history, helping us to understand how it continues to impact us, how it's embedded in the social institutions of our country. And we will never address all of that by just dealing with racism at an interpersonal level. It will have to be dealt with at a social institutional level. And you could apply the same thing to sexual assault and harassment against women. You could apply the same thing to pornography, the way it's embedded in our social institutions. It's not just an individual thing. You could apply the same thing to abortion, actually, which is also embedded in certain social institutions like the legal institution of our country. That doesn't mean we don't work at it personally, but it means understanding that the power and forces we're up against are much greater than interpersonal relationships. And the same is true for the evil and darkness and schemes of the devil. And I think it's probably, I suspect it's probably in Ephesus that Paul understands that perhaps for the first time. That he understands that the principalities and powers are, are stronger, more powerful, than he had understood that they were up to this point. Because the story in Acts 19 begins like all of the other stories before it. An individual named Demetrius begins to recognize that the conversions to the Messiah are going to cause trouble. They're going to eat into his bottom line economically and that of the other craftsmen who, who made these shrines or idols. But Demetrius doesn't just talk about that to himself. He takes his complaints to others. He takes his complaints to those who were also in the trade. And he makes the point that if the Messiah continues unabated, if the news of the Messiah continues unabated, not only will they lose their money, then on top of that he adds a religious argument, which I suspect was a false argument for him all along, but it comes, it becomes convincing, that Artemis, the goddess, will lose her reputation and be robbed of her divine connection, and be robbed of her divinity. Of course, we see what is happening here. 
The religious and economic social institutions of Ephesians of Ephesus are connected to one another, and if there's a decline in worship of Artemis, it's going to affect the decline in the economic structures as well. Silversmiths will be out of work. The economy will go down the tubes. Because you see, Satan had embedded himself, not only within individuals in Ephesus, but also within the social institutions and structures of Ephesian society. That's what we mean by the principalities and powers. That they embed themselves and have embedded themselves in culture and society and in history. This understanding would represent for Paul, I believe, a different kind of spiritual warfare than he had encountered before. It was one thing to cast out a demonic spirit from someone, but it's something altogether else to address Satan's powers at work within the structures of a society. Powers that have been in place for generation after generation after generation, and among a people like the Hungarian Jews in Ellie's village who had just become comfortable with their village, just become comfortable with their status quo, and were naive to the presence that evil and darkness were coming for them. As the story in Ephesians continues, we see indeed that all hell breaks loose in Ephesus. And in several weeks, we're going to come back to this story again because it is quite likely that Paul was imprisoned after this situation in, in Ephesus. Whatever happened to Paul after this riot, we're going to see that it was one of the darkest experiences of his life that he had had up to that moment. And all because the level of the battle had risen to the principalities and powers of Ephesus society. So where does that leave us, folks, in this apostolic journey that God has called our congregation to? Can we expect to stir up the principalities and powers? Indeed, and we already have. Are we victims of those powers? No. Can those powers be addressed at just the interpersonal level where we talk things out over a cup of coffee? No. Believing that fails to see how we as human beings become instruments, in fact, of the principalities and powers, often without even being aware of it. As with Elamis last week, confrontation of the powers, not coffee and conversation, is sometimes the only answer. But what does that confrontation look like? What do we need for it? How do we do it? Interestingly, it is the darkness of Ephesus that gives Paul the answer that he needs for us and for himself. And so he concludes the book of Ephesians as he's writing back to the church at Ephesus with what? What is in the final chapter of Ephesians at the very end of the chapter? What's that? The armor of God. That darkness that Paul faced drove him deeper to understand not only the darkness of the enemy, but the incredible power of the victorious Messiah. Paul was not about to give up. He was down and he was under, but he was not giving up. And so he comes back with this forceful message in theology in Ephesians 6 that we must turn to today if we're going to have hope. So Ephesians 6, turn with me if you would to verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10. if you're using one of our Bibles, 9.50. As I prepared for this message, I read this passage with a new appreciation. Because this wasn't just a passage that Paul, on a sunny day, wrote. This wasn't just a passage that Paul wrote and said, now listen, Ephesians, I want you to be aware of the devil. 
And I want you to go and I want you to put this armor on because in case you run into trouble, you just might need this. No, this comes out of hell for Paul. This comes out of the darkness for Paul. This comes out of a dark, dark period of his life. And when he finds the answer that Jesus is still the victorious one, that no matter what darkness he faced, Jesus was still victorious. No matter what difficulty he faced, Jesus was still victorious. Amen? No matter what we face, folks, Jesus is still victorious. That becomes what he identifies with again and again. And folks, that also becomes one of the reasons that God allows you and I to go into those dark places. Because we discover there that the Messiah is still enough. We discover there that the Messiah's power is still sufficient. We discover there in those places more than any other places that we are still victors. We discover in those places that the resurrection was for real. How do we discover that? Because we find that we are resurrected. We find that we are given power. We find that we overcome. So I hope you never read Ephesians 6 the same way again. I hope you understand that Ephesians 6, the end of the chapter, was embedded, came out of, grew out of Paul's darkest days. This is counsel from one who met Satan face to face in the principalities and powers, perhaps in ways that you and I never have yet. And this is his answer. And this is not an answer for the day when we meet those principalities and powers, folks. This is an answer for us today. This is, an, this is an answer for us to prepare for those meetings. This is an answer for us to prepare for those battles. This is an answer for us to prepare for what comes to us when we proclaim the Messiah. Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He's talking to a people who are living in the shadow of Artemis, the fertility goddess, and, a, and a principalities and powers that would continually come against them. Finally, my brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, remember I just said, he doesn't say, when the day of evil comes, put on the full armor of God. He says, put on the full armor of God now, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. We look at people around us who we thought had their act together. We thought were followers of Jesus. And we find that when the principalities and powers meet them, they fall. And we say, why? How could that happen? All I can conclude is that they, and when that happens to any of us, were not adequately armed. That they had not put on the full armor of God before that time came. We can look like we have the armor on. We can practice like we have the armor on. We can talk about the armor on. But until we put the armor on, we will not overcome or stand. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And Paul is very specific about what these weapons are, what the armor is, and what it stands for. Truth buckled around your waist. The breastplate of righteousness in place. Your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. 
Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of the saints. And pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. This set of instructions comes out of Paul's meeting Satan face to face. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, if you are going to stand, this is what you must do. This is the recipe. This is the field guide. This is what you must put in place. And what else do we see? The full armor is needed, not a part of it. All of these pieces are necessary. The armor is needed to stand against the devil's schemes of manipulation, intimidation, doubt, threats, and fear. And, and folks, when you've encountered Satan and when you've encountered him over and over again, you begin to understand that his, his choices of tactics are pretty similar. They take different forms, but they tend to be things like intimidation and fear and threats and insinuation. And he did this to Jesus. Are you really the Son of God? That's insinuation. If you're really a child of God, Conrad, if you're really a child of God, so-and-so, if you're this, then why are you going through this? That's insinuation. It's coming at us cynically, asking a question with a tongue-in-cheek. Insinuation, threats, fears, and more. If God is really at work in this congregation, then why this? That's insinuation. Our struggle, folks, is not against flesh and blood. And so by dealing with darkness only at the level of individual relationships, remember, it's not about flesh and blood. So dealing with problems only at the level of individual relationships or treating them only as interpersonal conflicts avoids the greatest source of darkness, which is the principalities and powers that we must come against. The right thing is to confront the principalities and powers. That doesn't mean we don't work in interpersonal relationships, but if we don't understand conflict of interpersonal relationships outside of the context of what Satan wants to do against the church of Christ, we are totally missing it. We're totally missing it. And the ship will go nowhere. Those principalities and powers must be recognized and must be addressed, not feared, but must be addressed. And so what is the armor that we put on? It's truth and integrity. It's not deception. It's not manipulation. It's the truth. The righteousness of Jesus over our breastplate that recognizes that it is his loyalty and his faithfulness that has saved us time and time again. It's that identity piece, that identity piece that makes Satan flee when we, when we recognize our identity in Jesus. The gospel of peace, that there's no conflict here between being a people of peace and, and being involved in sports, spiritual warfare. That the purpose of our, warf of our warfare, brothers and sisters, ultimately is to bring the shalom of the kingdom. But we often have to do battle in the meantime. Remember, this is the same guy that wrote 1 Corinthians 13, who also talks about the battle against the enemy. We put on the shield of faith to protect ourselves from the flaming arrows. And what would happen in Roman times is these, these arrows had flame and fire on them. And these shields were of wood, and so the wood would actually ignite. And so it was a scary thing if your shield, became, uh, if your shield uh, caught on fire. But Paul says, stand. Keep standing. Don't fall down. Keep standing and believing and have faith that you will overcome by the Messiah and his name. The helmet of salvation to protect our vulnerable minds from fear. 
that yes, I have been saved. Yes, I do belong to Christ. Yes, I have been rescued. Yes, I have been delivered. Yes, I have been freed. And the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word, His active and living Word that is more powerful than any two-edged sword. Isn't that interesting that the author of Hebrews used that language? That the Word of God is active and living and more powerful than, every, than any two-edged sword. And Paul says, who was probably not the writer of Hebrews, that our, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And I just want to say here again, again, and again, and again, I always encourage you to have a life with God because this armor gets placed on us as that life with God develops. As we spend time with God, we are actually placing the armor on ourselves. But if we do not cultivate a relationship with God, we are missing an opportunity to clothe ourselves in armor so that when the day of temptation comes, we're less likely to stand. I don't preach life with God because I think it's legalistic. I preach life of God because it's the salvation for you and me. It's the salvation in a time of darkness. Don't wait to develop a life with God until you get, till you get to tr- into trouble. Paul says, start it now. That in reading God's word and in spending time in prayer with God and meditation with God, that's where we get equipped for battle. That's our workout in the morning or wherever you have it. But if we do not develop that, folks, I'm telling you, we are at risk to the powers and principalities. And they ain't fun. And they are dark. And they are dangerous. And Paul warns us, you can do this, folks. You can stand. You can overcome. But only through the name of Christ and the armor that he gives you. And then he says, pray, 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 pray. Pray for me, too, as I walk through this apostolic journey. As I close, we have, we are, and we will encounter the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world as individuals and as a congregation. But like when we show up for any new job or any new sport or, and are given the equipment for the trade, it is only as effective if we wear it. Carrying around the armor of God will do us no good. Talking about the armor of God will do us no good but putting on the armor of God will be our salvation in that day of trouble. Praise be to the Messiah who gives us the victory over Satan. Can you say that with me like we mean it? Praise be to the Messiah who gives us the victory over Satan. Let's, I know I got it messed up, but let's say it again like we really mean it. Praise be to the Messiah who has given us victory over Satan. Lord Jesus, we recognize you this morning in the center of our being and of our existence. We recognize you as the one who sustains us. We recognize you as the victor and the redeemer. We recognize you as the one who has overcome death and hell and destruction, not just for us personally, but also for the world. And we thank you that someday the principalities and powers will be sent to their ultimate destiny, that they will ultimately lose their power in the face of your coming and your reign. And thank you that we are part of that reign story. We are part of that kingdom story. And I just pray that we would practice putting on this armor of God daily, that we would spend time with you, time in your word, time in prayer, in a way that prepares us for those days of darkness. And I pray for this, I pray for the board, for the ministry team, for every minister in this congregation, which means every member of this congregation, everyone who attends this congregation, that we would be alert to how the enemy comes against us, and that you would protect us with your power, that you would protect this mission that we are on, and the ship that you have created for us. We pray through Christ. Amen.
Uh, for the response song, um, God put this song in my heart a couple weeks ago uh, when we, <clears throat> when Conrad pointed out the banner uh, and the verse there. Um, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And um, that's from Paul in Galatians 2.20. He, uh, he not only spoke it, but he believed it. And um, it's in a song, in this song uh, by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. And um, you can sing along with me and proclaim it as well for yourself. Um, it's a beautiful song, and um, you can sing with me or you, if you want to reflect on the words, but... Uh... When I look back, what I thought was living The price I chose to pay And to think I ignored would really matter Cause I thought the sacrifice would be too great But when I finally reached the point of giving in I found the cross was calling even then And even though it took dying to survive I never felt so much alive For I am crucified with Christ And yet I live And not I but Christ cross will never ask for more than I can give, for it's not my strength but His, there's no greater sacrifice, for I am crucified with Christ, and yet I As I hear the Savior call for daily dying I will bow beneath the weight of Calvary Let my hands surrender to His piercing purpose That holds me to the cross yet sets me free I will glory in the power of the cross The things I thought would gain I count as loss And with His suffering I identify And by His resurrection power Christ, and yet I live, and not I, but 
cross will never ask for more than I can give. For it's not my strength, but His. There's no greater sacrifice. For I am crucified with Christ, and yet I live. And I will offer all I have, so that His cross is not in vain. For I found to live is Christ. And to die is truly gain For I am crucified with Christ And yet I live Not I but Christ that lives within me His cross will never ask for more Than I can give For it's not my says today is signups for quizzing start today uh, we will be quizzing on the lives of Joseph and Esther and the quizzing season runs from January to March so grab a friend and sign up the sign up sheet will be outside the library for the next several weeks to David and Ashley, I, I, we can't leave without giving people an opportunity for prayer, if you would like prayer. And so David and Ashley are going to have a response song in a moment, right, David? Closing, closing song, yeah, closing song in a moment. And I'm just going to invite you, if you are walking through a dark time, and you want someone to walk with you and pray with you, because we're never intended to walk through these alone, um, whether you want to share what you're going through or not is up to you, but if you would like someone just to pray with you, um, we, would, we would be happy to do that. And so those of you who are on prayer teams, if you would just pay attention if there are folks who come up during the closing song. Otherwise, at the end of the song, those of you, uh, you're welcome to be dismissed. And um, blessings to you this week, the peace of Christ with you, the power of Christ, and we will see you next Sunday. Um, so David, and uh, again, if you would like prayer, please feel free to come forward. Can you guys stand and uh, sing with me this morning to close out?
I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I believe in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that saving faith to me he did impart nor have believing in his word wrought peace within my heart but I know whom I believe in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day but I know whom I believe in and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. You're dismissed.